This is God's Word. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. The Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, as we walk through the book of Philippians, we're starting a new theme this morning as we walk verse by verse through this wonderful letter that I've titled A Kingdom Perspective. And this particular sermon in our series is called Gospel Progress in the Face of Trials. I used to have 2020 vision back in high school. I know. In fact, I was one of those mean kids who oftentimes would um, make fun of other kids who wore glasses. So I would call them four eyes, nerds, losers, you know. And then came the humbling. During my first year of college, I had a rude awakening. And literally, I'm not kidding you, within 60 to 90 days or so, I became nearsighted and I was forced to transition to wearing glasses. Now I was the nerdy guy and people made sure that I knew about it. Now my vision was impaired. And I know that some of you have experienced that on the level of the physical realm. And, um, you know, this can happen as well in the spiritual realm, right? Where we can actually lose um, 20-20 vision, spiritually speaking. We've all had seasons of life where we're hitting on all cylinders. Spiritually speaking, we're seeing things clearly. We're responding to our trials and our sufferings in a way that honors Christ. But then we've also experienced seasons of life when our spiritual vision is blurred, when our spiritual vision is impaired, when we've lost sight of what's most important, when we've lost sight, brethren, of perspective. Perspective. Perspective has to do with the lenses through which we see life, right? With our outlook on life. And isn't it true that when everything is calm and comfortable and positive and all of that, it's very easy to have a good attitude and to rejoice in the midst of favorable circumstances. But then when hardships come and discomforts come, it's easy to lose sight of reality and even to lose, lose our joy. In fact, the loss of joy is very closely connected to loss of perspective. Pastor John MacArthur writes this, the measure of your spiritual character, maturity, and strength can be determined by identifying what it takes to steal your joy. I like that. In other words, you want to know how mature you are, how spiritually healthy you are, then ask yourself, what does it take to steal my joy? Where is the breaking point in my life when I lose joy and when instead of rejoicing, I can grow bitter or, or negative or adopt a critical spirit or begin to point fingers at God or others? What is that point where instead of focusing on, on the Lord and on other people, I begin to sulk or wallow in self-pity? You see, more often than not, loss of joy is indicative of loss of perspective, that we've lost sight of what is most important. And Paul understood this. He was a sinner saved by grace, just like us. 
He was a man who experienced his share of unmet expectations, right? Unfulfilled plans. God redirecting things in his life. And yet, here is a Christian man who had a kingdom perspective by the grace of God. Flesh and blood, just like you and I. He was a man who sought to rejoice amidst his trials. A man who challenged himself by the power of the Spirit of God to see his difficulties as not um, uh, hindrances to the gospel, but as those things that fostered a greater progress of the gospel. And let's be frank, as we've been reading through and studying Philippians, there was no earthly reason for Paul's uh, Christ-exalting perspective. I mean, as you study the Philippians, you're reminded of his situation that it was far from ideal, right? Here he is. He wanted to always visit Rome. And now that he's finally getting a chance to be in Rome, where is he at? He's in jail, right? He's very limited in what he can do. He's in his own private house, yes, or he's on house arrest, but he's chained to a Roman soldier at all times. One soldier would be assigned to him every six hours on a rotation. So Paul has no privacy, no solace. He eats, eats, drinks, and writes all the while tied to a Roman soldier. Think about his limitations. And as he sits in jail, he awaits trial before Caesar, not knowing whether he will live or whether he will die. Wow, put yourself in Paul's sandals right now. How would you feel not knowing whether you're going to live or die? There is a sense of optimism that he shares later on, but he doesn't really know what's going to happen to him. And yet even in the midst of this, brethren, the sinner saved by grace had a Christ-exalting kingdom perspective by God's grace. He fought for joy. In fact, it seemed as if Paul shined brightest in terms of his Christian witness when encountering hardship. And the question really for us this morning is this. How about us? How are you currently handling your suffering and your trials? What are the lenses through which you currently view life? You know, we all suffer, right? To some extent or another. Now, I'm not talking about suffering for the sake of living in sin. That's not God-honoring kind of suffering. But there is different kinds of righteous suffering. There is suffering that is corrective, that is designed to get us back on track to the right path. There is suffering that is instructive. It is designed to get us to the point where we are sensitive and empathetic towards others who might be hurting. But then there's also suffering that is a strategic opportunity to see the greater progress of the gospel. And really, all suffering is just that if we are walking in righteousness. But there is this strategic kind of suffering that is for the greater progress of the gospel. And Paul is going to talk to us about that here. His highest priority and his greatest passion and pursuit was that Christ would be magnified. And brothers and sisters, it needs to be the same for us. We need to be people, each of us and us collectively, who have a kingdom perspective. We want to see, who want to see the, the progress of the gospel in and through our suffering and even as we live well under our trials. And if we're going to do this, to have this kind of kingdom perspective, then first of all, write this down. You and I must strive for gospel progress in the face of difficult circumstances. In the face of difficult circumstances. And notice how I worded this. Strive. Because it's not going to be easy. If there is anything in life that can distract us and take our attention away from living a Christ-exalting kind of life, it's difficult circumstances. And we've all experienced that. But by God's grace, this we must do. We've already talked about Paul's 
unique circumstances, right? He's awaiting the final verdict of either life or death from the highest Roman authorities. And again, just imagine if you were anticipating that verdict, how would you feel? Imagine the tension and the anxiety and the potential fear that might strike you because you're flesh and blood and you just don't know what's going to happen. So there's that part of it. And meanwhile, the, he's, Paul's also concerned about his Philippian brethren. They're wondering, not having heard from him or about him for three to four years approximately, how he's doing. They're struggling with their own perspective. And I guess this is the point right here in verse 12 where I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when they read these words. Verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. <laughs> that must have been a surprise to them. right? Contrary to what you may think, brethren, I am actually doing quite well. Because instead of an incarcerated gospel, God is using my circumstances, says Paul, for the greater progress of the gospel. And again, it's not because he's comfortable. It's not because he's, he's experiencing what he expected. He says, things are actually quite well because of the fact that God is advancing his cause. Paul kept sight of the bigger picture, you see. And it wasn't without resistance, right? There was opposition, even in his state of mind, and in his wrestling and tugging and struggling to make sure that the gospel was being advanced. He uses this word in verse 12, translated progress. You see that word? It's the word prokopin in the Greek. It means to advance or make progress in the face of resistance or opposition. It's a great word. It's a strong word. It was a military kind of a word. It was used in military context of those who would go before an army and clear the way by cutting down trees and making the road smooth for the incoming army to advance and to make progress and to attack, if you will. He uses the word as well in verse 25 of chapter 1, if you want to look there. Chapter 1, verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your prokopin, for your progress and joy in the faith, he says. Same word. Paul is saying my difficult circumstances, rather than hindering the gospel, are actually advancing the gospel. We tend to think the opposite, don't we? In our natural state. I'm suffering. I'm going through something bad right? that I consider bad. I deem evil. And I'm thinking, hey, the gospel progress is being hindered. Paul is saying, actually, through my circumstances, as I live well under them, the gospel is being advanced. Christ is being exalted. And so we must have the same kind of perspective. And I want you to notice the difference. Okay, It is not that Paul is saying, despite my suffering, the gospel is advancing. What Paul rather is, is emphasizing here is that because of my suffering, the gospel is advancing. See the difference? If we believe in a sovereign God who is in complete control of everything, even our suffering right, is a gift of God. In fact, he calls it this. Look at verse 29 of chapter 1. For to you, Philippian brethren, it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. You see that? That word granted there is the word from which we get grace. This grace gift has been given to you not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer. I like the former gift, but not the latter. How about you? I like the salvation one, but I don't want the suffering one. And yet, Paul is saying no. What God is saying to us, Suffering is also a gift. That's a mindset shift, isn't it? That's a mindset shift for us. 
Because we tend to view suffering in a negative way. And certainly, again, if we're suffering for the sake of evil, for the sake of our sin, then that's not God-honoring suffering. But if you're suffering for the name of Christ, this is a gift. Great implication already for us to consider, brethren. What's my perspective concerning my trials? What's my perspective concerning my suffering? What does James chapter 1 say, right? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing from experience, because you know from experience that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance, right? Spiritual stamina is produced as we live well under our trials. And so trials and suffering is actually a God-given gift. Very different than the prosperity gospels who, who preach what? Wealth, health, prosperity. Suffering is evil. It's a satanic, right? It's something that is brought to us by the, the mean devil. No. Scripture says God, believer, brings suffering. And he's got a purpose in it, a divine design in this. So do not be surprised when you suffer trials. Now the logical question here is this. How is it that the gospel is advancing because of Paul's suffering? Not despite, but because of Paul's suffering. I want you to notice this. First, verse 13 tells us that the gospel was advancing evangelistically. Evangelistically. People were coming to know Christ, brethren, in the midst of and because of Paul's suffering. Look at verse 13. So that my imprisonment, he says, in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. Now follow this. There was this elite body of Roman soldiers in Caesar's palace at the time, and these Roman soldiers were the, the, known as a praetorian guard. They were the official bodyguard of the emperor in charge of the imperial prisoners, Paul included. There were 9,000 plus of these guys, these prestigious soldiers. They were the best of the best, the cream of the crop. They had high, great influence. They wielded great influence holding political and economic power within the Roman government. They had great credibility because they had served the emperor for a long, long time, many, most of them. And, and because of this, they were held in high esteem and were even looked to for direction. So these were highly visible individuals, highly influential individuals. And Paul, mark this, was having such a tremendous impact as a prisoner that many of these prominent influential Roman soldiers were being shaken to their core in terms of their spirituality. Wow. Now let me ask you, many of them were being chained to Paul 24-7. What do you suppose Paul was talking to them about? What do you guys think? Maybe, hey, have you guys tuned into the latest Roman games? Who's smoking who in competition? You guys think that that's what he was discussing with them? Or, hey, guys, what's the latest scoop on the soap opera that is Caesar's household? You don't say, uh-uh. I doubt it that he was talking about any of that, right? What was he discussing? I assure you, brethren, that having this wonderful opportunity, Paul was constantly talking to them about Jesus, about one who is the Messiah, the Savior, the lover of of his soul, and that through repentance and faith in him, they could actually come to know him, be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's what he was doing. He was preaching the gospel to these guys. See, Paul viewed himself as a soldier of God's army in his own right. And he had that that mentality, right? And when you view yourself that way as a Christian, brothers and sisters, that you are a soldier of God's army, you're going to, whatever context you find yourself, you're going to be looking for strategic opportunities to have gospel kinds of conversations. Amen? Paul was that kind of an individual. He knew that he was a part of God's army. 
So he was always preaching Christ. So much he did this that later on, look at chapter 4 and verse 21. Chapter 4, verse 21, he writes, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's what? Household. Amazing. There's some serious soul winning happening right smack in the center of the Roman Empire. Why? Because of Paul's suffering, not despite Paul's suffering. Because of it. Because he's there as a spokesman for God, as an instrument of redemption in the lives of people. And God was fully involved in all of this. It was by design. If that wasn't enough, notice that he adds in verse 13, and to everyone else. It's not just a Roman guard coming to Christ, some of them, but others, perhaps other Roman officials in the palace, other non-believers in Rome, right? Others have become aware of Paul and who Paul stands for. The great name, the name of Christ, Lord. And so Paul is making a dent for the gospel because of his, of his suffering. How about you, brothers and sisters? You find yourself in difficult circumstances, difficult work environments, neighborhoods that are tough, family situations, close, extended family, right? As even Thanksgiving and Christmas is coming up and New Year, we're going to have an opportunity to see a lot of non-believing family members and our hearts yearn that they would come to know Jesus, right? They yearn. Do you see those uh, upcoming holidays even as strategic opportunities for you to speak Christ into their life, to live the implications of, of Christ before them? So that they would have a reason to ask you, what is it that makes you so different? Why, are you, why is your attitude so stinking joyful, right? Let me tell you about Christ. Let me tell you about the Lord Jesus. That's what Paul was doing. So there's some serious evangelization happening, but notice also that the gospel is advancing edificationally. Edificationally, meaning that people were, the brethren, believers, Christians were being built up in the faith because of Paul's suffering and the way that he was responding to his suffering. Look at verse 14. It says, and that most of the brethren, he says, Christians, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Notice this. As Paul responds with joy and he's optimistic in the biblical sense in his response to his, to his trials, brethren are being built up. They're learning to trust God. They're seeing a great God at work, right? Because God is sovereign and, and Paul believed that and, and they're seeing a dependable God that, who can be relied upon, that he's good and that he's wise and that he's kind and that what he wants is best in the life of Paul and therefore in their lives. They're growing in courage or boldness Hey, you know what? If Paul can do this, by God's grace, we can do this too. Look at the way that he's responding. He's speaking the Word of God in a fearless manner. Imagine, Paul became, brethren, an inspiration for his brethren. They were inspired by his faith. This is what people around us that maybe you've known allow us to do, right? They spur us on to love and good deeds, even in the area of preaching the gospel, because we see their boldness and their, and their courage. I knew a brother like that, a fellow missionary to Southeast Asia. And I got a chance to travel with this brother for 21 days uh, many, many years ago. And I would never recommend you doing that, right? 21 days I traveled with this brother. Amazing things the Lord did through our team of four men. And at one time we found ourselves in a Buddhist temple, one of the biggest ones in Southeast Asia. And it was amazing. We saw so many sad things and so much false worship, brethren. 
But one of the saddest things that we saw were these young couples praying and crying over by the fertility Buddhas, praying that the fertility Buddhas would open up her womb so that they could have a baby. And as we saw this, it just broke our hearts. And you know what this brother hero did? He went over to these young couples, and in his own language, he told us later on what they talked about, in their own language, began to tell them, you know that those idols can't speak to you, right? They can't answer. But let me open up the Word of God and show you the, the true God who does answer people's prayers. And it was amazing. And I'm t- I'm, I kid you not, within five to seven minutes, seven Buddhist monks went at him. And they started debating, and we couldn't understand anything that they were talking about, but later on he told us, back and forth for an hour and 45 minutes, they're debating the gospel and truth and all of these things. And by the end of that time, brethren, five of those Buddhist monks walked away, and two of them, we were able to give them brochures with the true gospel on there so that they could be evangelized themselves as well. It was an amazing situation. Do you know what that did for us as younger men? We were like, you know what, let's do this, man what else we got going on on this trip right we can go conquer the world for jesus now he inspired us his boldness and his courage did that for us this is the kind of profound impact that paul is having on his brethren that's what he's talking about here listen paul's not sitting around pouting feeling sorry for himself woe is me woe is me oh i am ruined you know i didn't sign up for this jesus i didn't sign up to follow you and and i was going to experience this kind of suffering No, Paul's not doing this. Instead, by the grace of God and the power of the indwelling Spirit, he's saying, look, I want you guys to know that I'm rejoicing in the fact that God is using my circumstances, that it's because of my circumstances that God is advancing His cause right smack at the center of the Roman Empire. See, Paul's leaving an impression there, right? The testimony of his life. We should preach the gospel message because it is a message, but we should also live out the implications of the gospel. Yes, we are salt and light in this world, brethren. I love this quote. My manifest suffering with Christ may be my best witness for Christ. I like that. My manifest suffering, that is what people can see, my manifest suffering with Christ may be my best witness for Christ. In other words, as people watch you as a believer, especially the brethren. They see the way that you respond to the suffering and trials in your life in a joyful manner, in a way where you trust God. You leave an impression. You inspire others around you in their trust and in their courage. See, we often think that our witness is only restricted to gospel proclamation, right? And don't ever forget this. It's not your life that's going to save anybody. It's the gospel message that you need to proclaim that's going to save people, yes? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not your life. But, but, many times people people have have not heard the actual gospel message from us. What they are going to see is our attitude and our outlook, yes. Even potentially on 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 our deathbed at the hospital. What kind of response do you have to your suffering? Like a sister in the Lord that we're we're familiar with who lives now in a different state. We constantly get all of these uh, wonderful prayer updates from her. And she's experiencing a massive physical illness she's receiving constant treatments she's in and out of the hospital so much time is spent just going through treatments but you know what's amazing as we get those prayer requests by text she has such a a, a high degree of joy such a high level of just gospel perspective that woman's got her gospel lenses on you know what i mean just a positive perspective and people 
are watching her there, nurses and all of that, watching her response, re- respond in Christ-likeness to the things that she's going through. And so our witness is powerful, brethren. It says something about the God that we worship. People are watching, right, even in the midst of the difficulties, especially in the way that we respond to our difficulties. What's your perspective like, once again, in terms of your trials? What's your perspective like in, when you're experiencing suffering in the area of maybe physical suffering, emotional, spiritual? How do you respond? In fact, how are you responding in the present? Do you live in a state of despair about your circumstances? Are you like a practical atheist where God is nowhere to be found in your thoughts? How are you responding? Is your pattern to grumble and complain about your circumstances? Or maybe others around you just know you for being angry, frustrated, fighting for your rights, right? Brethren, that might be the American way, fighting for your rights. That's not the Christian way. You know what I mean? That's not the Christian way. As Christians, we should remember that God has a higher priority in our affliction than ease, comfort, and security. I think it's hard for us to forget that as Christians living in America. That He's ordained our trials to grow us in conformity to Jesus and to use us as instrument of redemption in the lives of other people or inspiration in the lives of our brethren to strengthen our brethren's faith and their trust in God. And so Paul's brethren were watching him. So are others watching us. Now listen, in Paul's case, he was chained to a Roman soldier and in prison. Those were his chains. Those were his difficult circumstances. Maybe for us, right, we feel chained to other things, figuratively speaking. Maybe you feel chained this morning to a difficult job situation and you wish that you could do something different that would be more specific to the kingdom of God in advancing the kingdom and you just don't see how you being chained to that job that you have, that secular job, is actually advancing the gospel. Maybe you feel chained to a debilitating sickness and and getting older and you feel more and more limited, right? As we get older, we feel that way and it's natural and normal for us to feel that way, especially if you're a kingdom-minded kind of person like a sweet lady that I spoke to this week she wants to do more for Jesus more for Christ but she feels very limited maybe that's your chains maybe some of you young moms right you feel chained to a home life where you you're raising little ones and you're you're feeding them and you feel like you're doing laundry all day long and cleaning up all day long can I get an amen ladies right and you wonder am I making an impact Is the gospel advancing through my efforts here in the context of my home, being a homemaker and supporting my husband and and coming alongside of my kids and help raising them? And the answer is what? Yes! Yes! Of course you are! Because listen, the kingdom of God advances one soul at a time, doesn't it? And so if you have lives around you in the context of your home, you're making a massive impact, young moms and older moms. And if you have a debilitating sickness, listen, leverage every opportunity that God has given you, even in that context where you are, to be able to share Jesus with other people. And what about that job? Aren't there lives at that secular job? People to talk to? People who don't know Christ? So God has given you divine appointments right there. People, people, souls who go on forever, you see. And so if we we put on our gospel lenses, a kingdom perspective, then listen, God is going to use us all the more. And we'll have more joy. 
when we put on our gospel lenses. Amen? Secondly, secondly, we must strive for gospel progress in the face of challenging relationships. That's another way that we can have foster a kingdom perspective. Strive for gospel progress in the face of challenging relationships. And if you've lived long enough, then you've had these, right? We should expect these because we live in a broken, fallen world. And although we've been redeemed, we're still imperfect. We're still prone to struggle with sin. So we're going to be challenged in our relationships. Maybe with your spouse. Maybe with your kids. Kids, maybe with your parents. Maybe in the context of your neighborhood. Maybe in the context of the church or in the job environment. We're challenged in relationships because we live in a broken, fallen world. Paul had his own share of challenging relationships to deal with. Notice And he talks about two categories of these. But one of them was actually positive and one negative. First, he had to navigate navigate some some ministry rivals, uh, relationships that were really negative relationships. Look at this in verse 15. He says, some, some to be sure. And the question is, who are the some that he mentions in verse 15? And for the answer, we need to look back again in verse 14. It says that most of the brethren, you see that? Most of the brethren, so these are some of the brethren that he's talking about first and foremost. Look at verse 15. They are preaching Christ. Preaching Christ. So these are ministry rivals, at least from what the text seems to indicate, right? Who are Christian preachers. Preaching Jesus. But look at verse 15. It says that they are doing so even from envy and strife. They're preaching the same Jesus, but they don't care very much for Paul. Remember, before Paul got to jail in Rome, there were already preachers there. And maybe these guys are jealous of him because he's having more impact than them. They're seeing how God is using Paul. And so they're envious. Maybe they don't agree with him on some issue. Maybe they disagree with him on some secondary matter. Maybe some philosophical issue. We just don't know for sure. We can't be dogmatic about that. He comments further about these ministry rivals in verse 17. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Man, that's tough, isn't it? I got to tell you, few texts have caused me more pause in full-time ministry as this text. How could this be, right? How could it be that there are these professing believers, even gospel preachers, who are preaching Christ from impure motives, they actually mean Paul harm amidst his suffering? And yet he's on the, they're on the same team. They're on the same team. I like what one pastor writes, Honorable actions do not guarantee honorable motives, for even the goodwill of the gospel can be harnessed to the ill will of the human heart. Man. In other words... You know, it's quite possible to be preaching an accurate gospel and have corrupt motives. To be living a a double life. And brethren, we need to be careful of that ourselves, yes? Not just gospel preachers or pastors or leaders or whatever. You need to also guard your heart as well, right? And even from a perspective that we're all all part of the same team, right? We shouldn't be competing with one another. There shouldn't be ministry rivals amongst us. And Paul says, I have those. I have those. Second, he says also that he's got some ministry allies. Some ministry allies. Look at the end of verse 15. But some also from goodwill. There are other gospel preachers who are preaching Christ from goodwill. Verse 16. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed 
for the defense of the gospel. In other words, there are these other guys who are, who are ministry allies who actually have their gospel lenses on. And they know that Paul is part of the same team. They're preaching Christ. He's preaching Christ, right? They love and appreciate the ministry of Paul. They view him as an ally rather than as an enemy. But boy, tough stuff, isn't it? Tough stuff here. One day when I see Paul in heaven, I want to ask him about this. Paul, give me the details, right? What in the world was this all about here? There were Christian brothers who were totally on your side, preaching Christ, loving on you, and vice versa. And then there were these other dudes who were like professing Jesus, and they were proclaiming Christ. Did they turn out to be genuine Christians? Yes, they were. Whoa, how does that work, right? I love to ask him about that. Now listen, how does this apply to us, right? Our relational challenges may be a bit different than Paul's, yes, but they apply to us as well because we have them as well in the context of even the church. These exist amongst God's sheep. And the answer to how this applies to us is this. There are going to be times when you will be challenged in relationships, and these may be real challenges or there's a real conflict or by perception. In other words, these can be very real attacks from other Christians, or you may just feel like they 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 are coming after you and attacking you. Either way, it's difficult, isn't it? Whether it's reality or perception. And more often than we like to admit, we may be also guilty ourselves of either treating others this way by actively wrongdoing another Christian or just treating them with indifference. Just ignoring them and not pursuing them. Avoiding them altogether. Either one, either kind of treatment from us to another, toward another Christian is destructive and sinful and hostile, right? And we need to repent of that. Confess that to the Lord and make that right with that brother or sister in Christ if that's what exists. And so my point is that some of our greatest challenges and heartaches can come from believers, from other Christians And obviously the first response that we should each have whenever there are these either real or perceived conflicts that exist between us and somebody else is to examine ourselves first. To prayerfully examine before the Lord where we might have erred, right? That we may not be guilty of trying to take the the speck out of somebody's eyeball while all of a sudden, in the meantime, we have a log in our own eye, right? Listen, proud people are always harder on others than they are on themselves. Proud, self-righteous people are always harder on others than they are on themselves. And so, brethren, we need humility. We need humility. A humility that says, as far as it depends on me, I'm going to do everything I can to be at peace with that brother or sister. I'm going to do everything that I can do. I'm going to go the extra mile to make sure that that rivalry doesn't exist because that is destructive and satanic and sinful and wrong. I would also submit to you this, that we need to remember that we have an even higher objective than we must not lose sight of, right? Watch this. As Paul is sharing about challenging relationships with his brothers and sisters, notice what he asks in verse 18. What then? In other words, what am I to do in the midst of my own personal suffering? What am I to make of ministry rivals? That's what he's asking here. What, what am I to make of preachers who appear to be Christians, who are preaching Christ from what I can see, but who mean me harm? What am I to do with this? Boy, that's a tension that we experience, don't we? 
Maybe not on the level of this, but in our relationships. Have you ever been there? It's like this brother or sister, man, there's some legitimate wrong here. What am I to do here, Lord? What do I do? What am I to make of this? How do I solve this problem? What am I to make of all of this? Well, here it is. Mark it, okay? Here's Paul's loving, heartfelt verdict concerning what he's experiencing. What then, verse 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. He says Christ is heralded, that Christ is is made much of, is my highest priority, right? And in this, in that Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul is preaching to himself. I will rejoice. What a Christ-exalting perspective. Because most of us would have taken this as a personal attack, right? Give me my rights. I'm an American. I don't deserve this kind of suffering. And perhaps the fact that he repeats, yes, and I will rejoice in the text, right, is an indication that Paul, too, is, is wrestling as you and I wrestle, right? Why does he repeat it? Yes, and I will rejoice. He repeats it because Paul ultimately submitted himself to the greater cause of the gospel, brethren. His reputation wasn't the main thing. His popularity or credentials weren't the, same, the main thing. Winning an argument or one-upping these Christian brethren, professing Christian brethren preachers, was not the main thing. No. Paul wanted to be a humble man by the grace of God who wanted to see Christ exalted Christ is the greatest priority. He wanted to see Christ made much of. The name of Jesus advanced. Listen to William Hendrickson, who comments here about Paul. Quote, Paul's self-forgetfulness excites our own, our, our affectionate admiration. We love him all the more for having written this beautiful passage so applicable to us. Sensitive soul though he was, he does not begin to pity himself because, he, because certain jealous preachers were trying to win applause at his expense. What really matters to Paul is not what they were doing to him, but what they are doing for the gospel. But is it possible then that such selfish individuals, these ministry rivals, that these selfish individuals can render service to the gospel in any way? Yes, for it must be borne in mind that those who hear them do not know what Paul knows about them. The listeners hear only the good preaching. They do not see the bad motives. What matters then is that in every way, that is whether in pretense, as by those who know how to cover up their selfish ambition, or in truth, as by those whose sole aim is actually the glorification of their Lord and Savior, Christ is proclaimed, in this, says Paul, I rejoice. I love that. That was Paul's highest priority. He was a kingdom-minded individual who had his gospel glasses on. Brethren, what about us? Is your greatest priority, your greatest ambition, the greater progress of the gospel, the advancement of the name of the lover of your soul if you're a believer? Is that your heart this morning? If not, put your gospel lenses on. Put your gospel glasses on. Because as Christians, we can get caught up in so many peripheral matters. Amen? accumulating possessions, pursuing and worshiping materialism. Even good things can be misplaced priorities. Even good things can become idols of worship in our hearts, yes? And we lose sight of what's most important and why it's most important. Well, for Paul, he viewed even his present trials as God-ordained opportunities for the gospel and not as, as obstacles to the gospel. 
And my prayer has been that by God's grace, brethren, we do, we do the same thing. That we would have our gospel lenses on and that we strive for gospel progress in the, in the midst of, in the face of difficult circumstances and challenging relationships. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you so much for your wonderful grace and for the reminder that you have saved us and called us to be holy, to be set apart for your glory and the good of our brethren even. And so Lord, help us to have this kind of kingdom perspective, gospel glasses, where Lord, the, our outlook, the lenses through which we see life is that Christ would be exalted. Father, that's got great pertinence for our challenging circumstances, our difficult relationships. And I pray that we, as we look to your word, would be more shaped by what the Bible says rather than by what our culture says. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.